The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 24 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Know that men call you liar. Know that men call you betrayer. Know that men call you defiler. Therefore, it is the duty of the avenging podcaster, Adam Tudor. Sorry, the system kicked in there for a minute. Advising you never to visit the office of a chiropractor called Dr. Bain, I'm Michael. And joining us tonight is a man who might share the name of a character from DC's Forgotten Bloodlines crossover, but he's way more popular. From the Cult Film Club and Hellbent for Letterbox podcasts, as well as his own cavalcade of awesome blog, it's Paxton Holly. How's it going, Pax? Hey, Adam. Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me on. And I completely forget every time that it, there is a character named Pax in that Bloodline saga. <laughs> I completely forget that. It is just on the horizon here, so we may, in fact, cover an issue where he is featured. Lucky you, Keep Michael. doing this to me. <laughs> Why? Everybody's read the good stuff. They've forgotten this stuff. But you, it, it's like you like to torture me. It's, it's really, really Oh, it's like the, my my 2020 worst nightmare is having to read this drack of comics that I've had to read over the last year. But uh, I power through as it is. But I want to say, you know, Pax, welcome to the show. I've I've heard a lot about you. Adam has sung your praises. So, Pax, I'm very interested in hearing your comic book origin story. I had to think back and try to think, like, uh, how did I first get into it? And I probably was introduced to superheroes through cartoons like Super Friends and stuff like that. Um, as far as comic books themselves go, every year my family growing up for years, we all caravanned over to Myrtle Beach. Actually, it was Sunset Beach, just outside of Myrtle Beach in the border of North and South Carolina. And uh, we went and met my family there. And from Birmingham, that was eight, ten hours. So during that trip, my mom, she would get us activity books, word searches, you know, stuff like that. Well, one year she got me comics and it was one of those polybag, like multi-bagged, like three pack of comics. And uh, it was, if I remember correctly, the very first one she got me was a three pack of Secret Wars comics. Wow. And uh, I still I still have those comics in there. And they were the last three, I think. Uh, Way to go, mom. Uh, Gee. Yeah, 10, 11 and 12, I think. So you had Doom there all like beaten up on the cover. 
Yes, that was the one. That's the big memory of, of that was the one on the front. And I saw it first. And uh, it's a fantastic cover and still one of my favorites to this day because of that. So from there on, she, she would get me comics. And I actually wound up finding a comic shop like right outside Sunset Beach. And if we were showing up early, she'd, we'd drop off at comic shops and uh, and I'd get to look before we went to the, the beach house. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, and that was it was right around crisis. So I, I want to say like early to mid 80s was when I kind of started getting into comics okay now pax here's the thing because over the years i was a guest on your now retired podcast sunsetted as they say nerd lunch many times specifically <laughs> to pitch wacky ideas for teams and mashups you're basically based on 50 cent bin comics you see michael this is where it comes from this is what we would talk about <laughs> i can see it i i i can visualize it in my mind's eye <laughs> but the only reason it took this long for you to join us on the podcast you were on my short list at the beginning but then I mistakenly thought that you had mentioned at one point that you abandoned comics in the 90s. And so I was like, well, maybe he doesn't want to be on this. So why don't you set the record straight and also explain in the 90s, what was your experience with comics? Yeah, so my hiatus. Uh, that did happen. <laughs> and it was... Probably like I'd say closer to the mid 90s is when it happened. And uh, it was like the influx of image. And well, and it was right. At, like, so I got into college and you're not wrong. It was like right into college, like around 92 was my freshman year. And my comic collecting buddy was my freshman year roommate. So we didn't fully break from comics. The mall right by my college uh, had comic conventions that you could go to and we we still went to those i was still picking up i wasn't getting anything new i was mainly picking up old infantino flash comics because i was trying to complete that oh, run wow and uh, so that's mainly what I was picking up. I was reading comic scene at the time. Uh, I would pick up the odd wizard here or there. And so I kind of tried to stay in on it, but I was mo mostly into, into older stuff. So I got into college and then like the image explosion was happening. And then you got like Jim Lee and Rob Leefield and, and Sylvester and all those guys started becoming big and their style kind of became pervasive throughout comics. And I don't I didn't like that style, that scratchy, crosshatched, like crazy proportioned style. And I didn't really like it. So it was kind Thank of a conflux goodness. like. Thank yeah, it was like a perfect storm of stuff that happened. College, the style of comics, and just like all this stuff going on that I kind of took a soft hiatus for many years. And uh, it wouldn't be until probably around like 2008, 2009, when uh, I finally decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back into it. And I picked up a few comics and Robert Kirkman kind of got me back into it. And like his Astounding Wolfman, I don't know if you guys have ever read that. That was a phenomenal book that kind of like, OK, I want to read comics again. And then it, I read his Marvel Zombies uh, run, which was really good and that got me into thor uh, god of thunder which was right around when the movie came out from jason aaron and uh so that got me rolling back into comics so some from like 94 95 to 2009 ish i took a soft hiatus well you know what pax you are not the only one who had a thing or two to say about rob liefeld's art style so why don't we uh, open up a letter michael in willie lumpkin's mailbag So, a reader named Dino mocks Rob Liefeld's deficiencies as an artist in what is the first instance of criticism of Rob from comics readers recorded in Wizard Magazine. Oh boy, here we go. Let's see what this has to say. Dear Wizard, why... 
or more importantly, how do the thighs on Rob Liefeld's characters get bigger and bigger and the calves get smaller and smaller each month? How is all of that weight supported? They must have cartilage of steel or in their knees. I'm just glad that none of them wear corduroys. Why would that be a big deal, corduroys? Because their thighs would rub together. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the noise would wake the dead. I bet Liefeld's next hero is going to be Legman, a superhero with no upper body, but two massive legs with six-ton thighs and three-inch thick calves. What? <laughs> oh, man. The, the Twitter age before it existed. Here it is. His arch enemy could be the cartilage man. Oh, my God. I can't even get through it. It's so funny. And he, he could have a cartilage destruction ray that he keeps trying to aim at Legman's knees. Later, Dino Markowitz, Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> Wow. I feel like this is a conversation that was definitely being had in comic stores at the time, but this is the first time it was being printed, right? Like the criticism is finally rearing its head, you know? it's Even though Wizard itself, their editorial staff has gone after Rob a little bit, you know, in their interviews, here this guy's just like, nope, guess what? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I have to agree with Dino in a lot of ways. I, I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but it's one of those things where I'm like, if this was, and, and I'm just thinking about Image Comics, if this was Image Comics at this time, I just believe that they did not have an identity yet, and they were just like pumping out whatever they could. Most of it is awful, but people were <laughs> buying it because it was like the hot new kid on the street, and everybody wanted to say that they were involved with it, even though it was bad and this fellow dino here kind of nails it on the head it's like it doesn't make any sense so that's my opinions on that personally so this letter this letter in issue 24 of wizard is the first criticism we've gotten of rob liefeld yeah well from the comics reading public like nobody has from written public, in okay. yet yeah in the letters column and said did you notice that rob liefeld's style is kind of weird and it doesn't make sense like nobody has said that yet you know so it's, it's one of those things that's finally rear its head a little bit and at the same time you know for all the criticism we give him the guy still sold millions of books continues to sell a lot of comics in this day and age whenever he pops up so there are a group of people out there that love his work some of them are listening and that is fine guys he's pretty good yeah. at layouts it's just anatomy that's his problem but his layouts are dynamic and fun but yeah and and his faces all look exactly the same <laughs> In their Wizard Wonders column, the staff asks a question that would only make sense in the 90s. Here's the question. Would all the videotapes be erased if Magneto went to Blockbuster? See the Jack Black most deaf movie, Be Kind Rewind, for the answer to this query. I, I, are they saying because VHS, like the magnetic 
on the film? Is that yeah, what it... yeah, because yeah, so you know, it's yeah. magnetic tape, right? So that was the thing back in the day is if you got it near a magnet, there was the whole thing. It's gonna erase the tape. So that that's one of those things. I just think it's hilarious. Magneto, you know, he wants to go rent clear present danger, and then he <laughs> takes it home. He's like, this doesn't work, and he brings it back, and they get a replacement <laughs> tape. This isn't working, you know. <laughs> but but that's what happens in Be Kind Rewind. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Michael. I actually have it, but I haven't ever wanted to watch it. Oh, it is <laughs> fantastic. It is such a great movie. I love it. But in that movie, Jack Black gets magnetized, and then he walks into the video store where Mo's Def works, and he starts touching all the tapes, and he literally erases everything. So the whole point <laughs> of the movie is they have to re-record every movie that they filmed themselves. And they call no. it Sweeting. They say, oh yeah, that's how they do it in Sweden. This this is a, a different version. And so they do Ghostbusters. They just do all these movies of them performing it. And it is so heartwarming, but it's also hilarious. You know, just ridiculous stuff. Now I kind of want to watch it. That's pretty funny. It's movies like that you kind of want to like enjoy with somebody. And my wife would not want to watch it. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to sit there and watching it on my phone alone in the dark. Like a, like a weirdo. So just, <laughs> I don't want to do <laughs> well, it. Well, let me put it this way. It's from the same director as the green hornet movie and this movie is yeah. way better than the green hornet movie so take that for what it's worth the <laughs> seth rogan green yes. hornet movie oh interesting interesting this movie knows it's a joke the okay. green hornet wasn't so sure yeah they weren't <laughs> so sure so that's our willie lumpkin's mailbag but adam what's in our table of contents for issue four, 24 all right well here we are august 1993 cover date we have a batman nightfall cover by joe casada and jimmy palmiotti which caused a bit of an issue with dc comics as reported by pat mccallum in issue 50 of wizard so here's what he recalls wizard number 24 uh-oh another problem with a major publisher concerned about the cover Art. This time around, we had artist Joe Casada draws a Batman cover featuring his final design for the post-Nightfall Dark Knight Batsuit. We learned DC was trying to keep that Batsuit under wraps, as it would be a while till the final design would show up. So we ended up censoring the cover by covering most of the Batman in shadow. Then, he goes on to say, Wizard number 25, We marked our silver 25th anniversary issue by slapping some silver ink on the cover and by pissing off DC by showing last month's unedited Batman cover inside of the issue. It went like this. After we censored last month's cover, we got our hands on the latest Diamond previews, which showcased all of Joe Quesada's rough sketches of the Batman costume that we chose not to run a month earlier. We slapped our foreheads, said to hell with it, and ran our cover art in former Bat artist Mike Bailey's interview. DC wasn't thrilled by any stretch. <laughs> Wow. So they're like, well, previews did it. Why, why couldn't we do it? And that's the hilarious thing about this. In this issue, there is an ad for Advance Comics, which was kind of a rival magazine catalog. And you see the full Azrael Batsuit there. So it is, they were running it inside their magazine. And they, they even did this one that they decided to censor. They couldn't win. There was no winning for Wizard in this one. That is an Our. amazing story. Here's the thing, though. When you look at this cover, there's also a fake out i guess maybe joe casada was trying to anticipate what dc was going to think about it because yeah the cover is like a crouched Azrael in the bad armor but he's mostly in shadow which is what joe casada does anyway so who would have noticed that that's what they were changing but then if you flip it open you know the full cover itself you see that in the background Azrael is there so how could john paul valley be Azrael and batman in that moment 
Yeah, that's interesting. Weird. Well played, <laughs> wizard. Well played. <laughs> the funny thing about this cover is, like, you have Tim Drake Robin on the back of Bane, and it's another instance of Tim Drake has got thighs the size of watermelons, but his head <laughs> is, like, as big as an almond, and it's just, like, not proportioned there. Well, and, and Bane looks like the Hulk. I mean, Tim looks so tiny on his back. He looks yeah. like a little elf. He does look he like does. a... He doesn't look enough. It's, it's not well proportioned at all. It's a cool cover, but it's yeah, yeah. Fun. I mean, it's dynamic. It's fun, but you know, this whole focus right here on Nightfall. There's an article in here titled "As Real as It Gets." Oh, come Ooh. on, <laughs> so just Ooh. the beginning here in this issue, but it reveals that the planning behind the Nightfall saga happened a year and a half prior to this issue, with Denny O'Neill pitching the concept as quote Batman loses his stuff and getting burnt out <laughs> so that was the idea just take him to the brig right and it's mentioned that dc didn't promote the sword of azrael as a tie-in to this big upcoming event so it was under ordered by retailers even though jean paul valley was created a hundred percent from the start to become batman according to writer doug mensch one of the worst ideas ever but that's <laughs> yeah we'll get into that here shortly but joe casada mentions that he knew when he was designing the Azrael look that he would also be designing the Batman armor. And so he said that that design took him all told about 14 hours, which is a pretty good turnaround when you think about it. Michael, I have to ask you, uh, we're going to get into your thoughts overall on Nightfall, but what has been the fate of Azrael since the 90s in the Bat books? I mean, does he still appear? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Jean-Paul Valley or just Azrael? So he's appeared in a couple different forms of new media in the Batman mythos. So he actually plays a fairly significant role in the Batman Arkham games, in particularly uh, Arkham Knight. He, oh. he plays a significant role in it, and, and Batman has to like repeatedly fight him and, and like kind of mentor him in a way. He's popped up a lot in in different Batman stories and detective comics. They try to bring him in on a couple of different detective comics teams here and there. Like they were, were teaming up with people, but currently there's, it's kind of an Elseworld story called uh, like curse of the white knight or white knight where the Joker kind of becomes a good guy. And Batman is kind of the enemy of the state. And Azrael plays a very significant role in all of those story arcs. They've even released new action figures, a redesign for the character's suit, which is like black and gold. There's a lot of Azrael stuff happening wow. literally See, I, right I now. I really thought that he would have been left behind. Like, I know he got his own ongoing series eventually, but I thought it was just kind of like, ah, that was a 90s thing. We, we don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> like, Pax, what did you think when you heard about Batman's going to get his back broken or how did that word come to you there was going to be a new Batman? Yeah, I, I do remember all of this stuff coming out, the Azrael stuff and the Nightfall. And uh, like it was probably, if it wasn't Wizard, it was going to be like comic scene or something like that, like a magazine. And, and I think I even remember before it, like they were saying that Batman was going to die or something and someone else was going to take it over. Um, and then maybe that morphed into whatever Nightfall, you know, breaking his back and stuff like that. So I remember all that coming out. And this was, like I said, this was in that, that kind of hiatus time 
them. So like Nightfall and Azrael have been the two, like one of the story things that I've not gone back to revisit, even though it's one I really want to do. It's just, it's really it's kind of, long. It, <laughs> yeah. I like, I looked at it and I was like, man, that is super overwhelming. And I don't know if I want to delve into that right now, but uh, I love the idea of Azrael. Like on paper, I really liked that idea, which is why I kind of wanted to get, dig into it. But uh, it's, it's a lot. And yeah. uh, I, so I haven't gotten back into it. Well, it's interesting you say that. See, even though, you know, I was definitely reading Wizard at the time, I remember picking up an issue that was a special edition of Hero Illustrated. And that's where I got all my Nightfall and Batman news. For whatever reason, I missed the Wizard issues that were covering it. So I had my Hero Illustrated. And you know, I was it was actually during a period where I was living in New Jersey for six months. And so I, that was like my one comics thing I had. And I would just read it over and over again. And so, but I never actually read the Nightfall comics until this this year and i just read really? through everything on comiXology i just covered it all you know starting with sword of azrael and went from there and i read the vengeance of bane one shot which they said actually met the same fate you know as a uh, sort of azrael nobody knew that bane was going to factor into anything so nobody bought the book but he was also created specifically as a villain that would be smart enough and strong enough to beat batman and unlike the battle over who created venom that we've been reading about in our past uh, issues here uh the bat team happily share the credit they are admitting that bane was conceived by chuck dixon but designed by graham nolan so here's the fun fact nolan says originally bane's mask had an open mouth and open eyes but quote the editors wanted something more mysterious so he just filled them in <laughs> with white <laughs> and a little bit of red and there it is so michael same question with bane has he come back Again, Bane pops up a lot, much more than Azrael. But again, he's he's all over the various mediums. Like he's he always pops up in any of the animated series that you'll see. There's always a, a version of Bane. He's in all of the Arkham games as as a character that Batman has to fight. And recently, there was a run by Tom King who did a, a Batman run. For, I think it was like 85 issues of Batman after they did the Rebirth and Bane plays a massive role in that. He is like the architect of Batman's demise and basically the whole plot of it is like before I broke your back, now I'm gonna break your spirit and I'm gonna break your soul and and like he manipulates the entire city and he, it was fantastic. It was one of those things where it was kind of a bummer because Tom King was forced to rush it and end it early because it was dragging out a long time but once the final full payoff happened, it was so good and so tragic that it's actually more devastating than the actual breaking of Batman's spine in the 90s. I was wondering what would break first. Your spirit <laughs> or your body? <laughs> <laughs> now, apparently, like you said, Pax, that rumor of Batman being killed was going around, and it led to a lot of angry letters being sent to DC. But in this article, they admit that Bruce isn't dying, but editor Scott Peterson is saying their books have consequences for the long run. Quote, when Robin died, he stayed dead. We'll never go back and say that didn't happen. Jason Todd is gone for good. Oh, is he? <laughs> Comments. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Lazarus Pit. Yeah, that was our little ace in the hole to bring him back. Yeah. 
And it's reported that not only is Bruce Wayne retiring, but Jim Aparo is leaving Batman with issue number 500 after the longest run ever. He'd been doing it consecutively for over 20 years, drawing Bat books. That is nuts. And now he's going on to pencil a Green Arrow book. It's like, I guess you just want to change a pace, but... <laughs> Batman light. Yeah. <laughs> So we talked about, you know, you guys, it's a little bit long. We talked about the major players, but would you say as a story, Pax, you said you haven't gotten deep into it here, but is it a successful concept for you in execution, Michael, as you've read it? How do you feel about it? What about you, Pax? Just do you like it overall, the idea of it? Yeah, overall, I thought it was a pretty strong idea, just how putting Batman through the gauntlet. And once he gets through it, he's got the worst guy ever to go up against while he's exhausted. And that's how it happens. I thought that was a pretty great idea. How about you, Michael? As you read it, what did you think? As I said back in the Death of Superman episode we did, I thought that the structure of Bane and like the, the build-up and everything was so much better than that of Doomsday because, like you said, he's not only super strong, he's also highly intelligent, so he becomes a double threat to Batman in trying to defeat him. The overall story of Nightfall is very very long it could have probably done with maybe two or three less issues than it had overall but it's still shorter than no man's land which literally is like a hundred issues of stuff (laughs) but uh I, I really do like the idea of Nightfall. There are certain things about it that I don't particularly like, and we'll get into it as we go on. All right. Well, so for me, I, I've mentioned this in the past, but I didn't read Nightfall, but I listened to Nightfall. The audiobook? I had Yeah, the audiobook version is an audio play. It was like a full audio drama. You know, it was performances, voices, sound effects, music. Like, I got, I got the Nightfall movie, you know, in my head as a kid, so it's... It definitely had a huge effect on me. So when I finally read the comics themselves, you know, I was hearing all the same voices that I grew up listening to. And yeah, I I just feel like for me, because it's longer, it feels more substantial and it almost, you get worn out along with Batman. You're like, oh, I can't believe there's more. There's more. But (laughs) but it works. Like it kind of puts you in his mindset. Because it's like undoing all his work from all those years, you know, and then taking kind of the, the shortcut in not calling Dick to be Batman and getting this new guy. He's like, ah, he's good enough. <laughs> he can fight. <laughs> he, he knows what he's doing. Let's put him in a bat costume. Let him be Batman, you know? Uh, so that, yeah, that's the moment. It's kind of strange. But what happens in the story, which is awesome, is like Tim Drake, you know, has been around for a couple of years at this point, but now he is the voice of sanity in the story. And so he really rises. Like his stock just, you know, becomes very valuable. You're like, wow, Robin is like the only guy we can count on right now to keep everything you know in line with the with what batman's supposed to be so i love that part of the story and staying on that the next article is called boy what a wonder <laughs> they really need some better uh, <laughs> taglines. Oh, uh, but this covers the history of Robin in comics, but mostly Tim Drake's rise to prominence at this time. Now, the author praises this new Robin costume as, quote, possibly one of the best-looking costumes in comics today. Uh, now, it's mentioned that DC went overboard with the gimmicks when he got his second miniseries, Robin 2. Now, just listen to the explanation... Uh, uh, you know, th- 
this should be a Guy Gardner's gimmicks a go-go, but we're here now. So here's what they say to this. Unfortunately, the series fell victim to marketing as it was one of the most gimmick-laden series, mini or regular, ever to be marketed. First of all, there were five different covers for the first issue, four for the second, three for the third, and two for the fourth. Each cover had a holographic image, different only for each issue, not for each cover, with a cheaper newsstand edition, a tradition that DC has continued. The marketing behind this idea is always that many speculators or collectors will want not only all the covers, but multiple copies of each. Using this strategy, DC produced 14 different comics that really spanned only four separate issues. And to quote those late night TV commercials, but wait, there's more. There were polybag collector sets for each issue that included a trading card of the hologram for that issue. Finally, there was a boxed set that included all of the trading cards, all of the issues, and all of the holograms, and a new slipcase within hologram. A speculator who took advantage of all these various packages could well have spent a hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars on the four-issue miniseries, assuming he purchased two copies of the polybag collector set, one to open, one to keep bag, as is fairly standard practice among the speculators. Says, fortunately, an average consumer really only needed to spend four dollars to read the entire story. <laughs> Insanity. Yeah. Insanity. Yeah, that was like the the height of it. DC's like, we got to get it back. We got to get it back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, fun fact here, it's mentioned that Jason Todd was originally introduced pre-Crisis on Infinite Earths as an almost identical Dick Grayson clone, essentially. His origin and his attitude. He was just like the second coming of Dick Grayson as Robin. But then in the post-Crisis continuity was revamped to be the jerky little street punk ceiling hubcaps off the Batmobile that readers voted to kill off. Now, it's well established on this show, Michael and I love Tim Drake. So, Pax, who is your favorite Robin? That's a loaded question. All right, I don't love, (laughs) historically, Robin in general. I did like Tim Drake. I picked up um, when he got his own title. I I loved his costume. I liked him, I guess, as Robin. Um, I'm also a big fan and apparently apologist for Damian Wayne. I like Damian Wayne as Robin, probably because I never liked the idea of Robin anyway and I like this kid that comes in and is kind of abrasive and it's like super jerky and I just think he's kind of funny but if if we're talking like just the characters that were Robin Dick Grayson is probably my favorite and I grew to like him after he was Robin like as Nightwing yeah. and then when he became Batman when uh, Bruce Wayne was gone for a while and uh, then that's when Damian Wayne came in so Grant Morrison's run on Batman and Robin where it's Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne uh, that's one of my favorite runs right there really? and uh, really? yeah I really like that run i think they did another run after it with peter thomas he also did one uh batman and robin run too um but those those two titles there are some of my favorite stuff i just really enjoyed it and so dick grayson i like as a character if we're just talking robin in the suit probably tim drake i'm with you guys so here's a funny thing i don't know if you even know this adam so when they did the new 52 right one of the biggest changes that they did in regards to the batman mythos right so they they have all the all the robins and batgirl and so on and so forth but what they do they they make an interesting spin on it which i think is what should have stuck but didn't is after dick grayson leaves being robin and becomes nightwing batman brings on new apprentices or whatever to be like almost like an internship where they want to become a vigilante for whatever reason (laughs) and and they're with with Batman as as Robin or Batgirl or whatever. Was this the Batman Incorporated storyline or is that separate? 
This is separate from that. Okay. This is actually this is actually yeah. how they established the new Fifty Two with Batman was wow. like Jason Todd was Robin for a year, then he got killed, and then was Batgirl, then was Tim Drake, then was Damian Wayne, all only with Batman learning to be Robin for a year before they go off and be their own hero, and occasionally are called on to help Batman. Which I actually loved that idea that there there's. Because the idea of, like, the way I look at it is like this, and this has been my problem with Batman forever, and everyone who knows me knows I love Batman. It just doesn't make sense, right? Batman pals around with some young kid vigilante, but Bruce Wayne also pals around with a young kid of of the same age and nobody (laughs) can figure this out nobody like i find that so hard to believe you're telling me that jim gordon couldn't figure out huh (laughs) you sound very similar to that kid that batman hangs out with (laughs) Yeah, is there a Robin voice? Just like, you know, Christian Bale voice. Is there <laughs> yeah. a Robin voice they put on? <laughs> he makes his higher. He makes yeah. it higher instead of lower. <laughs> All right, moving on here. Sotheby's Auction House is offering up copies of Action Comics number one, Marvel Comics number one, which are expected to go for $80,000 a piece, as well as a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15, which is predicted to sell for $17,000 plus a secret stash from EC Comics publisher Bill Gaines' estate found in like-new condition because he took 12 copies of each issue, they said, and would wrap them in a paper bag and stash them away. And so he kept these original issues and that he had just passed away recently. And so they found it, and now they're being offered up and expected to get $20,000 just based on their rarity. That seems very low. I mean, $80,000 for Action Comics number one and 17000 for Amazing Fantasy 15. Recently, someone just bought Superman, you know, Action Comics number one for like $4 million. And I wonder if like what they're not saying here is what the grade on those comics are. It could be a very low grade, like they're in bad Well, condition. but I think it also has to do with just, you know, one is inflation, you know, like so $80,000 well, $80, back then. We have that factor again. But also I think it has to do with superheroes were not as mainstream i mean they are entertainment now movies are superheroes you know what i'm saying like that's what kids growing up right now think so i think there's just there's that aura of now like yes the value has risen on everything because everybody knows who iron man is now everybody knows you know it was saying so it's one of those things where so now the values will jump significantly just in the last 15 years or so Okay, I'll, I'll I'll agree to disagree, but I'll I'll go with your. <laughs> it's it's funny, like uh, I love seeing these auction lists, um, especially over the years. I remember seeing all these listings, and it did seem odd which which issues would get high and which one wouldn't. Of this list, Amazing Fantasy 15 is the only one I've seen in person. My personal comic shop in Birmingham, uh, Curious George's Comics, had a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15 on oh, the wall. I, and I've it was only like too. a couple hundred bucks. And I was like, I was like, at the time, I was like, that's super expensive. Thinking about it now, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, why would I not put together the money <laughs> to buy that? <laughs> I, I, I saw it once at New York Comic Con graded. It was like a 3.4 grade. And it was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars it was like oh boy that's <laughs> yeah that's a pretty penny for a low-grade book but it's uh, i mean it was just cool to see it in real life and i was like wow I yeah don't, I, you know it was one of those things like th- the guy walks over to me and he says no you can't hold it 
<laughs> I wasn't going to ask. <laughs> but it's interesting because here in Wizard, in the actual Wizard price guide, they only list Amazing Fantasy 15 at $10,000. So it must have been, you know, a very nice copy, you know, that you're thinking that they're going to sell there for that much. Now, moving on, it's announced that Continuity Comics, yes, Neil Adams, has his Death Watch 2000 event, and they are sold out across the nation, even after overprinting their run by 20,000 copies. And they said the reorder numbers are climbing. So we say Continuity Comics, huh? But apparently they had their moment. They had a few months there where everybody wanted to buy their Death Watch 2000. The uh, horrible article titles continue with straight into shooter. Ah, I don't, Amazing. I, I don't Amazing. even know what that's saying. A straight <laughs> shooter. But as you might guess, it's an interview with Jim Shooter, and it's about his new comic company, Defiant, and its launch title, Plasm, about a group of random earthlings transported to a fantastical sci-fi realm where machines are biological, and then they return to Earth with powers. Now, Shooter claims, this is very interesting here, that when he was ousted from Valiant Comics just this last year in our timeline, every publisher, including Tops and Image, wanted him to work for them, but Shooter decided he was going to start his own new company instead and go against all the stuff he had done in the past. Something new, something fantasy. So here's the fun fact, though. The original title of Plasm had to be changed at the printing time to Warriors of Plasm because Marvel sued Defiant based on the copyright of some random Marvel UK title called Plasmer. And they claim that was too close. Plasm, plasma, people are going to get confused. You're infringing on our copyright. And so they went to court. Defiant won the case, because Marvel's case was flimsy, but it cost the company $300,000 in legal fees, damaged their financial stability, and the Defiant eventually went out of business. Which I guarantee you, that's what Marvel wanted to yeah. begin with. Anyway, that's what it was all about. Every every time you just call him Shooter, all I can think of is Shooter McGavin. <laughs> shooter, <laughs> this is Shooter's time. Do the Peter <laughs> the finger guns? To yes. Could Shooter come off any more pretentious in this article? It is cringeworthy reading some of the stuff he talks about in here about reading science books for a hobby and figuring out quantum physics to use in his i mean like come on dude really snore snore i mean he always snore. talks about how he wants to keep stuff in reality so i don't i don't doubt that he's like well i read a book about it this could really yeah, happen totally and when i was training frank miller it's like come on man seriously yeah that he takes a lot of credit for a lot of people's careers you know and giving them a chance at marvel but what's interesting here so i have my copy of Warriors of Plasm in front of me. But also, Michael, you might recall, we covered a little bit, I think it was like two episodes ago, that there was an ad for the Warriors of Plasm trading cards, where in order to read issue zero, you had to get a full set of the trading cards. Isn't this one that like pieced it all together or some right. go gobbledygook? I was like, oh, another So, so each, each nine-page holder of your cards in your binder was two pages of the comic front and back how do i know this well i'm holding it in my it. hands right now <laughs> <Of course you're. laughs> 
<laughs> we will get more in depth on Warriors of Plasm at a later date when it actually hits the shelves in, in the timeline here, Michael. But just so you know, we're well oh, prepared. I'm, I'm so I'm so excited. Man. I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled. Oh god, oh, this might be pink. the one, Michael. This might be the the hidden gem. <laughs> this might be the one that breaks me. And like that's it, I quit. <laughs> I'm done. Warriors of Plasm will be your bane. <laughs> now Shooter is going on to talk about the rest of the lineup here for Defiant. They're want, they're not just a one trick pony. He's writing another book that he gives no details on called War Dancer, and then he claims pretty much like every other new company that pops up that Chris Claremont is coming on board to write for them when he finishes up his commitments to other publishers. But he has convinced Steve Ditko to basically do a Doctor Strange style book called Dark Dominion, which is really interesting. You know, just the fact that Steve Ditko kind of it always felt like he was in and out of comics he's notoriously a difficult man as shooter uh, explains yeah he had a good enough relationship with him that he could convince him to join their team but also in the mix is a comic called the good guys which has a really interesting gimmick but i'm not going to reveal it now we're going to cover that book at a future date because i have a personal connection to it but a final fun fact here from this interview for those who don't know jim shooter is a giant he is a massive man. He is so tall. But he states that the head of Dark Horse Comics, Mike Richardson, is actually one inch taller than him. So just for him to randomly throw that in, I thought that was funny. He's just like, oh, yeah, we're going to do some stuff with uh, with Dark Horse Online. But Mike Richardson, he's one inch taller than me. <laughs> that was an interesting random fact. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned Dark Dominion. I have that. Like, I was fascinated enough. The shooter... Oh pulled Steve Ditko in on one of his ventures and uh, I was able to get some of the Dark Dominion stuff and mainly because also Ditko's uh, Doctor Strange stuff which they mentioned in the article is fantastic and um, so I was like oh what's he going to do here and it's not great I mean honestly it's not really good but Uh. (laughs) uh, it was it's interesting enough knowing it's Ditko and there's some cool stuff in there but overall it's just not it's not that great All right, so we won't be covering that Michael (laughs) you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief (laughs) thank you You're welcome. (laughs) Now, Peter David appears for his third feature interview in the magazine. I mean, it's only been around for two years, and they just always go to Peter David, and I'm not complaining. I love Peter David, but he is discussing his new take on Aquaman, and he's starting by doing a miniseries that retells Arthur Curry's origin to catch up new readers on the character, who he kind of admits nobody really cares about Aquaman. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to change this i have to interject everyone (laughs) always would dump on aquaman for some reason as a kid my number two favorite hero was aquaman whoa i like i had the superpowers action figure i loved aquaman because i love to swim i love the water and everything and it's like man could you imagine being able to breathe underwater and talk to fish that'd be awesome and everyone's like he's the guy that talks to fish it's so lame i'm like i don't (laughs) understand how that's lame okay Well, I feel like Peter David did a lot, as he's explaining here, to change that perception, at least among comics readers, because he says here he plans to introduce, quote, dramatic physical and emotional changes in Aquaman himself, which will get readers talking. Holy harpoon hand! Did it ever work? (laughs) David also mentions that he quit writing X-Factor for Marvel to do Aquaman because of the Fatal Attractions crossover we just covered on episode 22, where he did not want to 
write that issue that we reviewed because he says it sapped all the creative energy out of him being forced to follow an outline created by an editor. Kind of sounds like Chris Claremont and Peter David could commiserate over drinks together. (laughs) But uh, although Peter David admits, quote, I tend to think it's just a fault of mine being something of an egomaniac. So I'm just glad at least he can admit it. You know, he keeps a sense of humor about himself. It's just uh, Peter David at his best, you know, is what this article is. He's just got all the quips, got all the jokes. But when the bearded harpoon hand Aquaman came around, Pax, did you get a whiff of that where you were like, oh, what's going on here? Yeah, I totally remember. I was a fan, a big fan of Peter David. I came to him through his novels, though, and then found out about his comic stuff. So I, I remember him doing the reboot on Aquaman. And sorry, Michael, I was traditionally not a fan of Aquaman. I didn't make fun of him like because he talked to fish. It was just, I don't know, that was a character I just didn't connect with and I didn't love. But there's been some iterations I tried. Like I tried the hook hand and Peter David. And I mean, he was essentially a pirate underwater. And yeah. uh, like, uh, it was all right. It, 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 it wasn't like I didn't really connect with Aquaman until like the new 52 reboot with Jeff Johns and Jeff Parker yeah. uh, were, was fantastic. I read that whole thing. And that was the only time that I really kind of had a connection with Aquaman. And I was like, this, okay, this character is really interesting. And I really like how they did that. Um, and I, I don't know why I couldn't connect with Peter David because I do love his writing. It's just for some reason, his Aquaman just didn't grab me. Yeah, I've not been a fan of the hook hand i could take or leave the beard it doesn't bother me but i don't particularly like it the only time i thought the hook hand was cool was in the justice league animated series because it had like a a ratcheting almost like grappling hook element to it that oh. i thought was really they they did that in the, in the in the cartoon i forget it was like him and superman are underwater and he like shoots the hook hand into like the side of a bedrock as they're like getting pulled away from like some super strong current and i was like that's cool i i all right i i buy that but otherwise it doesn't do it for me then at one point they changed the hook hand to like a water-based hand which was really really bad Uh, (laughs) yeah um but yes i agree the the jeff johns run in the new 52 really reestablished him and mera as like very interesting very powerful characters with good backstories i do regret though a couple years ago sideshow collectibles released a quarter scale premium format of aquaman that had both the short-haired blonde head sculpt with both hands and a variant bearded with the hook and i did not buy it and i still to this day regret i should have bought the thing but it was like five hundred dollars i was like yeah i said to my wife i'm gonna bring home a five hundred dollar statue of aquaman i'd probably be sleeping with it on the couch for about a year <laughs> uh, all i can say is Zack snyder if we don't see jason momoa with a harpoon hand shame on you <laughs> michael was the the hook hand version refresh my memory was that shirtless aquaman or was that the weird like blue white design looked like the side of an rv uh it, it it varies sometimes he is shirtless and sometimes he's got some sort of like body armor thing on him yeah the one you're thinking about pax that's from like the late 80s that was yeah. a reboot they uh, attempted okay. yeah yeah but like usually he's shirtless for whatever reason you know because he's aquaman and he's underwater i guess i don't know yeah why does he need a shirt he's in the water yeah exactly. <laughs> 
Namor had the right idea. Speedos all the time. Speaking of Namor, he's making a big, bad comeback in Marvel right now as well in the comics. He's popping up all over the place. Hmm, maybe planting a seed, eh? For yeah. some upcoming <laughs> cinematic fun. All right, well, speaking of Marvel, there's an interview with Jim Starlin. It's called Beyond Life and Death, so they broke the streak, at least, of terrible titles at this point. But he's talking <laughs> about his plans to leave Marvel once he finishes the Infinity Crusade event. Now, Star Starlin claims that he originally wrote the Warlock character in the 70s at a time when he was paranoid and suicidal. So he just worked that into the stories. Then, the Infinity Gauntlet story was about, quote, unbridled power. And Infinity War was about the duality of man. Infinity Crusade is about religious beliefs. Ah, this this got a little too deep for me. I'll take Jim Shooter (laughs) over Jim Starlin. Thank you. Interestingly, though, Starlet reminds us that he wrote A Death in the Family for DC, so getting back to The Death of Jason Todd, which I had totally spaced, I didn't realize that was him, and he then wrote at Marvel The Death of Captain Marvel graphic novel, so he had a reputation, he became known for killing off characters. He was the death <laughs> dealer. Yeah. (laughs) But the most interesting thing to me is Starlin says the main reason he's leaving Marvel to produce a book called Breed at Malibu is that, quote, Marvel's just gotten too cheap about how much they pay. Everyone else is paying better. (laughs) So that just seemed to be the case. It's like all the new companies are like, we got capital. We got money. We want the best. We will pay you. Come right for us. Draw for us. Just briefly, though, for you guys, the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe does that draw you in when you saw Endgame and Infinity War? We were like, oh, yeah, I know all that. Pax, you go first. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jim Starlin and his work at Marvel. And like, so his, all of his cosmic stuff, they, they brought him in a lot. Like all the cosmic guys, Living Tribunal, Chaos, Eternity, all, all those guys, whenever they showed up in a comic, it made me super happy because these guys are just amazing. And they're like so powerful, but they're so powerful. They can never come in a comic very often. So when you do get to see them, it's kind of great because they come in and they make a judgment and it's just like, I'm just so important that this is what's going to happen. And then they leave and you never see him again. So uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy the cosmic stuff and uh, Starlin's like all of his, his Infinity Trilogy and, and everything. I was I was a big fan of all those. And he did a big run on Silver Surfer with Ron Lim. That was fantastic. It's one of my favorite things. So, yeah, I definitely loved a lot of that cosmic stuff that they were doing. So I like the cosmic stuff. I do like when they intermingle it. But there's just there's so many characters. It's <laughs> overwhelming at times like yeah and there's also a lot of characters in dc that are space based or you know multiverse based characters or what have you but like the cosmic element of marvel there's just so many characters that i can be like i don't remember who this guy is i know i saw him 20 years ago and i tried to figure out like like google search <laughs> like who is this guy oh is this the guy that's related to scott summers like is his dad and it's like i don't get so confusing i'm like i get confused yeah i think for me i've just the reason i've always been more on the marvel side is they said it you know in kind of a, a semi-realistic world at least saying here are cities that exist here are things and landmarks and whatever else that you can recognize so when they get cosmic it's just my brain doesn't enjoy it it, it doesn't accept everything that's <laughs> happening it was like oh you just make it up a bunch of fake stuff you know it's like you know they're, they're not gonna they're not gonna fight down in front of famous rays original famous rays or just, i don't know what are all the pizza <laughs> variations michael in new york you mean like papa john's or like uh... <laughs> 
So yeah, so like the closest I got, and he wasn't a cosmic hero until later, was Darkhawk. So like I, I enjoy Darkhawk as a concept and everything, but then eventually, you know, he started getting cosmic, his origins, and they delved into all of that. Then I was like less interested. You know, I even, I tried to get into the later Marvel cosmic storylines. What was that, like War of Kings or something they did? I can't remember what it was called. Uh, but and So I was picking up these new Darkhawk issues, and I'm like, eh, I like him when he's this Earth guy who takes off his helmet and everybody's scared of him for some reason, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so Cosmic Marvel is not for me. But speaking of the Earth, there is an article here crying for the Earth, which is, honestly, if you look at it, I'm pretty sure this is just an offensive reference to the 70s TV ad featuring the Native American crying with the single tear on the side of a road. I'm pretty sure that's why it's crying for the Earth. But uh, this is another highfalutin writer-artist, Mike Grell, who explains his plans for a new book called Shaman's Tears at Image. Now, it's the story of a half-Irish, half-Sue Native American hero who is in touch with nature and can take on the powers of animals. Quote, he can do things like run like an antelope, fly like an eagle, cue Steve Miller Band, and <laughs> rustle like a grizzly bear, end quote. So yeah, basically, Brave Star. You created a more stereotypical version of Brave Star, Mike Grell. Congratulations, good work. <laughs> Grell admits that the reason he did publish the book at DC is that, quote, it would sell one-tenth the copies it would with the image label on it. DC does not sell books in the same number the image does. Now, last episode, we actually talked about how Grell ran an ad for Shaman's Tears criticizing gimmick covers after having just released this book with a massive eight-page fold-out cover, which he justifies in this article by stating, quote, you need something that will leap off the rack and grab their attention. Once they pick it up and open the book, I've got them. So <laughs> he's like, well, it's all about the writing, but you still got to play the game and I want that money. So I'm going to image. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's all about the cash at this point in time. Now, hilariously tying into just this previous interview, Mike Grell has a, sh a Shaman's Tears spinoff book that he has planned that he originally titled The Breed. But because Jim Starlin is doing his book called Breed at Malibu, Grell had to change the name of his book to Bar Sinister. Uh, apparently you had to move really quick on those copyrights in 1993. A lot of name changing going on in this issue. <laughs> I know, right? But yeah, so you had to be on the ball. But here's the thing, though. So this character, if you look at him, it's a very, like, I, you can tell this guy is, quote, an Indian, you know. Now, I live on the Navajo Reservation. I, I was there for a year, and now I live in a town that borders it among the Navajo, you know, nation, the Native American people here. My wife is a doctor who works for a clinic on the reservation. But guess what? They are the most average Americans you can imagine. Like, the depiction of Native Americans in entertainment as these, like, mystical, ultra-spiritual beings, it is ridiculous, and it's, it's pretty offensive. I'm not saying they don't have their traditions and the spirituality behind it, but, for example, my Navajo buddy, his last name is Red Shirt. He collects limited edition Nike sneakers and was first in line for the Galaxy's Edge lightsaber replica building at Disneyland. Okay, so he doesn't commune with nature. He's a pop culture geek. 
<laughs> he is plugged in, you know? So I'm just saying, like, if you have that image in your head, please uh, <laughs> reboot that. Because it's, uh, it's unfortunately really uh, still ingrained in, in our society. So Now, in this next article, Painting a Picture of Success, catches up with Nelson, who is an artist you might recall painted the Ghost Rider cover for Wizard number 13, who has now been given his own universe at Dark Horse called The Manta Line, where he is launching a book called The Udemon that no one has ever heard of, so we won't waste any time on it here. I just mentioned that because uh, The Udemon, he's got this whole big concept, this whole highfalutin thing, and I'm just like, I nobody's going to want to read this. <laughs> like, whatever you're selling, we're not buying. And the article is painting a picture of success, but these books were not a success. <laughs> Anybody? Nelson DeCastro, I think a lot of people know him now. From what I understand, he actually does actually some great designs for sculptures. Zach Oat, uh, who we interviewed, he used to run Toy Fair and now is over at Diamond Select. He, he was mentioning Nelson. He's done some cool things. I just don't think writing and drawing comics was his thing. He's an illustrator, but maybe not a storyteller. Now, the storyteller side of things, though, that was going on in indie comics. I'm very curious to hear from you guys. In Palmer's Picks, Tom Palmer is highlighting Los Brothers Hernandez, a.k.a. Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez, plus the less publicized brother who I've never heard of, Mario, who have been writing a black and white indie anthology comic called Love and Rockets since the 80s. Now, are you guys familiar with Love and Rockets? Have you heard of Love and Rockets? I have the whole run, entire run. <laughs> I know you're deep into the mythology, yes. Never heard of it. Uh, I remember it, yes. I remember it very vividly. But uh, like I, when I was reading at the time, I was very mainstream, very capes. So I was all superheroes. So that a lot of these indie ones, uh, I did not delve into. Yeah, thanks to Comixology, I actually got into Love and Rockets because before I actually got my Comixology Unlimited account, I was cheap in the early days and I would only download the free comics that they offered. And guess what? They were offering a lot yeah. of Love and Rockets comics for free. And so I started shocked? reading them. Yeah. <laughs> but they're actually really interesting because they're they're just like slice of life stories. Like, for example, Jaime, he writes stories about two girls named Maggie and Hopi, and they're just best friends. And they're slacker youth in the city. And he also has a whole line of, about female pro wrestlers, but they're like, you know, not like cool, like glow or like the current stuff happening in wrestling these days. It's like, old grandma wrestlers you know like they were in the 60s and <laughs> 70s you know it's, it's so it looks like you know your fourth grade teacher is a wrestler now so he does like all like the backstage stuff with them it's really interesting gilbert on the other hand he's writing stories about people on this imaginary island he created called palomar it's often featuring a woman named luba and uh yeah so they they, they kind of just go back and forth and to the point of they don't do superheroes per se but in later stories they actually kind of had an alternate universe where like these basic characters in their universe were actually secretly superheroes you know they would they would go out and have adventures i don't know i, I got a kick out of it their art style is very distinct so it's just love and rockets michael if you ever want to you know maybe it'll put you to sleep i don't know but it's black and white <laughs> <laughs> but give it give it a shot madman love and rockets put it on the list oh that's such a long list it's a long <laughs> long list <laughs> All right, now it's time to get into the meat of this episode. 
We haven't reached the meat of the episode yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is it right here. So this is called Looking for Another Big Bang, which is a behind-the-scenes look at the three launch titles for Malibu's Ultraverse line of comics, which were Hard Case, Prime, and The Strangers. So, Pax, when we were talking about having you on, you said, I really want to talk Ultraverse. So tell us about that. Why was that? It's always interesting to me when any of the companies like like to try to start a new universe. And uh, like I was a big fan when Marvel started their Ultimate line. I like when DC started their New Fifty Two. I like seeing the beginnings of these of these new universes. And that's what Malibu was trying to do is start like day one kind of a new superhero universe. And looking at the the launch titles and some of the stuff they were trying to do, they at least on the surface had some interesting ideas. And they were trying to take superheroes in kind of a little different way. There were some that when you looked at them, you're like, well. That's clearly a ripoff of this guy. But then there were some that was like, okay, that on the surface, that may be a ripoff of that guy, but it kind of digs in and it's like, okay, well, maybe it turns it a little bit on its ear and kind of does something a little different with it. So th- there's a mixture of just like ripoffs and actually kind of interesting ideas. And I, that always kind of fascinated me. So like over the years, I've been trying to dig more into it and not a lot of people really know about it. Yeah. Well, Ed, whenever we have mentioned the Ultraverse and just little things here or there in our social media, there are all these people are like, oh, I can't wait to hear you guys talk about it. Or I love those books i wish they would bring them back so like there is this like group out there that got in on it and tried them but what you like what you said there packs about them trying to create a whole universe from scratch i think image sort of had that intention and did not accomplish it too well but malibu what they did was their editor-in-chief chris ulm he assembled mike barr steve engelhart steve gerber james hudnall len strazuski gerard jones and larry niven now uh, there are a few of those names you're probably going to recognize pretty well a lot of them uh, working at marvel and this was in scottsdale arizona which i used to work there i was like i didn't know that the ultraverse was birthed in uh, scottsdale <laughs> but it's one of those things where basically they just had a conference hashed out ideas for characters to populate this new interconnected universe and gerard jones states quote most superhero characters have too much background too much baggage to carry around with them we have a great opportunity to go back to basics and so yeah what, what did they do they created these three titles at first hard case and then prime and the strangers and a hard case is basically the story of a guy who was a hollywood stuntman but then he ended up getting powers or maybe he had them all along i i didn't remember that part of the story when i read it but then he created a superhero team and they were the first like justice league in this universe but then they had some bad stuff happen you know one of them died other ones are permanently injured you know so then he just went back Back to the movies. Yeah. Yeah, so the hard case, what, what's your take on that one there, Pax? Uh, he wasn't bad. Like, uh, Actually, he was he was uh, written pretty well by Hudnall. I, he reminded me a lot of Wonder Man, you, you know, like uh, this hero that kind of was a movie star. But this guy was a superhero first, and then he kind of lost his friends, and then he's like, I'm not going to superhero anymore, so I'm going to become an actor. And it becomes a very popular actor. But then he's ultimately unfulfilled, so something happens, and he gets back into heroing. I thought it was kind of an interesting take on that idea. And, of course, it, it, like it... it seemed interesting to me like yeah superheroes would be great as like do become a hero you could do your own stunts you know you can do stuff on screen without effects um that just it was an interesting idea to me i mean it's hard to get past some of the real 90s-ness of the art and some of this stuff but um i liked the story for it and i thought it was a pretty good character yeah, it's interesting. They mentioned that Dave Gibbons, you know, famous for Watchmen, among other things, designed the character, but he's not the artist at all. So he just came up with the yeah. costume design, which I think is kind of the worst part 
of the character. Agreed. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. So it's very, it's very much a Lee Field thing with the huge pauldrons on his shoulders and everything. It's not great. <laughs> yeah, a hard case is interesting, but maybe not like the number one. He seems to be like kind of the the original Ultraverse hero is kind of how they have him pegged. So in the continuity, he's the guy. And now when we talk about the new kid on the block, though, we have Prime. Now Prime, they out and out said, yes, it's Captain Marvel for the 90s. Like that that's just <laughs> the bottom line. But what's really interesting about the first issue of Prime is you see this character, this ultra buff guy in a cape. And what's he doing? He is out there saving the day. He's doing all, you know, he's, he's breaking this pervy PE teacher's arm. You know, so there's a little ultra violence there. And, <laughs> and all this stuff is happening, but it's all told from like a third person perspective, right? You're not inside the head of the hero. So all you see is him doing all the stuff and people reacting. And then at the very end of the issue, you see this little skinny character in shadow emerge from this gloopy body that's melting. So this the muscle and everything melts away and then you're just left with this little skinny nothing. It's not till later. So you literally had to keep reading to figure out, oh, he's a teenage kid and he, you know, he has these powers and he likes comics and he, he understands his concept of a superhero. So he goes out and behaves that way. It's different than, you know, I'm Captain Marvel and I uh, say Shazam, you know, I'm Billy Batson. I go to another dimension and Captain Marvel shows up. This is a lot grosser sci-fi. Um, now, Michael, did you hear about Prime back in the day? Is that a character that you recall? So when I saw the cover, it automatically jogged my memory. I had never read a single Prime book or anything of like that, but I do recognize this character very, very vividly. I've seen this cover before. And honestly, this was not the worst thing you've made me read. It was actually pretty interesting. <laughs> you know, the art is very, very good. I, I thought the story was cool. The ending, like you said, the twist ending of ooze-ridden Billy Batson, essentially, is very, very clever. And will I read more? Probably not. But this one was pretty good. <laughs> I I, 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 I dig it, and I do I do recognize it. Well, and it makes sense, you know, you say you remember him, because, yeah, he is definitely, like, it was the most popular book in the Ultraverse line. It makes sense, you know, the teenage boys that were reading it could relate to the character. But also, just the design is really interesting, because they mention that the character, as originally designed by Sleepwalker's Brett Blevins, didn't go far enough in Brayfogle's estimation, because Norm Brayfogle, who had been doing Batman up to this point, is now the artist on Prime. He says, quote, We're dealing with a kid's vision of a superhero, after all, Brayfogle laughs, and they don't know the meaning of the word enough. His Prime is overmuscled to a fair thee well bulging all over the place in a near parody of the archetype, but considering the mind beneath the body, it works in a very quirky way. So it's was, it was just <laughs> interesting how they're like, that's not extreme enough. <laughs> Pax, what's your take on Prime? I love Prime. I mean, it was the most popular for a reason. Um, um, Bray Fogel's art is fantastic. I mean, he's great anyway. But I, like you said, it's a uh, it's the Captain Marvel pastiche, you know. But I love that they took it to almost like a like you said, like a sci-fi horror. Like when he turns into Prime or when he turns back into the little kid, it's like a horror show. And like I like that little turn. And it's like this kid never wanted this. He never asked for this. So that one of the mysteries is is how did this thing happen? It's not like Captain Marvel where he met a wizard or you know Spider Man where he got bit by a spider. 
it's like something happened to this kid. His dad may know something. So it's like a whole mystery about how Prime came about. And uh, like it's just set up really cool. And the art is fantastic. So I, I love this one. This one's one of my favorites. I obviously definitely remember Prime. But what I thought was so cool about the character, because I didn't read it back in the day. I think I read the first issue, but I, I didn't read much beyond. And I just loved that over time, as the kid's perception of a hero changes, his prime body comes out differently Mm -hmm. and so it'll change you know eventually he turns into a very 90s you know anti-hero type prime he's got long hair and stubble and chains you know (laughs) and then even uh later on jumping ahead like he gets like a space armor version of himself and other things so it's just it's really kind of fun how that how that plays out now what i think is not quite as fun is this book called the strangers which is their (laughs) first team book that they're trying to launch and if you look at the cover you're just like this is the most generic indie superhero designs and then you get into it and you realize it's even worse when they decide to come up with their different personas especially there's a kid <laughs> named zip zap zip <laughs> Don't be zip zap, kid. Come on now. (laughs) But the basic premise of this one is that there are a bunch of people in San Francisco on a streetcar. I've been to San Francisco. It's not really the most dangerous city in the world. It's not the most (laughs) mysterious city in the world. I I just don't know that it really matches up to New York and people, you know, going in a streetcar. But basically, they all get zapped by mysterious energy and it gives them all powers. I think they say there were 59 people on the streetcar so a group of them eventually come back because there's another event that starts occurring at the same place and they're like maybe that'll give me answers as to why i've developed this power why i can turn into different colors of flame you know the zip zap kid why i can run like the flash this other Mm -hmm. guy why can i shoot spikes out of my body and so on and so forth you know there's all these different powers involved in their team and then yeah so then they're like They are the strangers, not because they're strange. They're literally strangers, and then they decide to be a team because there's a rich fashion mogul, and she's got all this money. So she's like, I'll finance our work as superheroes as we try to uncover this mystery. It is like when you talked about new universes packs, Marvel did their new universe, and that was the thing, right? There was this big white event, they called it, and a bunch of people got powers, and then, you know, you'll maybe follow them, maybe you won't because nobody's going to read their books. Uh, But that's what's happening here. And so it's kind of like it does play out eventually into another book but i i don't know like as i read this i was like it's not terrible i mean they they got the teenage boys covered because there's a synthetic woman who eventually starts running around in lingerie she's got her garter belt and everything (laughs) on but she's uh, turns out she's a robot you know (laughs) it was just one of those things where i'm like wow there's a lot going on here and it's not terrible but i don't i don't know if i want to read anymore Uh, what was your take pax yeah okay so i was excited to read the strangers uh uh, because I thought it was a cool idea. Like you said, a bunch of strangers get powers and then they form a group. I thought that was a great idea. The problem is there's way too many people. There's way too many power sets and I can't keep anyone straight. And Englehart's a great writer, but the problem is the art is not good enough to distinguish anybody. And because there's so many characters, there's not enough time to, there's like two or three guys and they're all horrible nineties cliches there. And like the, the Android girl, like it's like, there's some great ideas here. It's just executed it's pretty bad like it's it's not great i couldn't get through more than a few issues of it yeah it didn't quite didn't quite connect with me now so here's what happened though so they have these first three going 
going on. And then Malibu invested a huge amount of marketing for the launch of this Ultraverse, which included last issue in Wizard, there was a special coupon to help you get an issue of Ultraverse number zero. Now, Michael, I don't know if you recall, but Image did this the previous year. They had Image Month. How could I forget? (laughs) (laughs) So you you had to get all the coupons for the Image books that came out that month and send them in. Then you got this ultra rare, right? Uh, Image uh, comic that nobody else could get, you know, Image Zero. So Ultraverse is 100% ripping off that idea right down to Ultraverse Zero features a cover by Jim Lee. Huh? (laughs) Working for the competition, Jim. Okay. But you have to redeem all five coupons, which come in hard case number one, prime number one. Okay that makes sense then wizard number 23 so last issue you had to get the coupon out of there and also malibu sun number 26 which was malibu's version of marvel age magazine essentially here's our company here's what we sell you know so and then you had to get all the coupons luckily it's an insert that is not on the back of page of actual story <laughs> happening <laughs> they were yeah. smart enough there and then you have to send it in and you get your number zero so you know, they were like well that worked for them we'll do that but they all Also, it's mentioned in the Wizard News that they are filming a 30-minute short film that is going to tie into their comics. It's not revealed here, but uh, we'll talk about this uh, at a later date, but it's a comic called Firearm, and they make a movie about it, which is kind of cool. But also included in that is a three-minute short film trailer for Hard Case. What did you guys think of the little Hard Case clip that you watched? Uh, well, for me, it was pretty generic. Uh, there, there was nothing specific, like except for the ponytail. I didn't really feel like there was anything specifically Hard Case about it. I, I like the guy. The guy that's in it is Gary Daniels. He's a he's an action star guy, and he's doing some martial arts stuff. But there's no superhero stuff. I, I don't know. I thought it was kind of generic. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't. It didn't wasn't just a super yeah it, it just looked like a stuntman reel you know he's like oh yeah i'm trying to get some work here's what i could do you know that at the yeah. very end he yeah. shows up in costume and that's it yeah it, it was i mean it was fine it's it's i don't know it, there wasn't a lot of story there i feel like and like i said it does feel like a stuntman just doing action sequences and stuff like that it was like eh, whatever what was more entertaining though is that there were actual tv commercials promoting the launch <laughs> of the ultraverse guys we watched these commercials really? Ooh, you love the 90s you gotta love the ultraverse commercials uh packs what were the highlights for you i love these commercials and they're like yeah they're loud they're screaming at the screen green at you and uh I, I love them infiltrating a comic book shop like like they're performing a heist there's a lot of good actiony kind of funny uh cartoony kind of stuff going on here and uh like I, I'd never seen these before. I knew, I knew uh, they had commercials, and but I'd never seen them before, and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it starts like one of them, like just two slacker dudes sitting on a couch. <laughs> then they eventually, like, they go to the comic shop and they try to go in, and the dude guy's like, "Lines back there!" And there's like a line <laughs> around the block. They're like, "No!" <laughs> they do bungee jumping. Yep. <laughs> and then one of the kids, Pax, and I recognized. We were very excited. Did you see a minor celebrity in there? Michael, do you know who we got excited about to see in this commercial? No, I I, I must have missed that. Who was in it? Ice from the Disney film Hocus <laughs> Ice Pocus. From Hocus Pocus. <laughs> 
You know oh, ice. Oh yeah, I, I yeah that that one I definitely missed that. <laughs> For those who don't recall ice, just like Michael, he was one of the bullies that steals Omre Katz's shoes, but he had ice shaved into the back of his head because that's what everybody did in the nineties. That's how you proved totally. you were cool. See, I thought it was going to be some sort of like Troop Beverly Hills reference that I was going to totally miss. <laughs> if only. <laughs> nope. Just Hocus Pocus. You know, uh, PAX was uh, nice enough to send us, you know, a a whole collection of all of these Ultraverse books. We were able to read a few of them digitally. So there were lots of other titles. They included Mantra, Prototype, Exiles, Freaks, Nightman, Rune, and Sludge. So we're going to wedge a quick Robin's Reading Rainbow in here to tell you what we think of Malibu's Ultraverse as it relates to the book called Mantra. So, Michael, why don't you kick us off here? Because we gave this one to you to check out. What were you expecting from the cover, and what did you get when you started reading? So, everybody's trying to get their own cable, first of all. And, like, there's this guy on the cover that literally looks like Cable, point blank. And this female character who's kind of have a scalloped batman kind of cape and some robotic villain in the background i wasn't too excited when i saw this cover but as i went through it the art isn't bad it's actually a pretty decent art in the story the book is kind of interesting it's not what I expected from the cover at all. Yeah, well, let's say that. The cover art is not by the interior art artist, and it's actually a terrible cover. It's It's not great. (laughs) Yeah, issue two has a much better cover by the artist, you know, who actually does the book. So yeah, so Terry Dodson is the one doing the the work on the interiors, and yeah, he draws wonderful characters, uh, and it's a pretty interesting concept. Do you remember the basic premise there, Michael? I don't remember what I had for breakfast today, man. (laughs) (laughs) We'll pass it to Pax. So Pax, what is the basic concept of mantra? So, I mean, like, I get, oh, man, it is, it's pretty wild, but it feels like these two sorcerers are battling each other, and they each have their own warriors, like good warriors and bad warriors, and they're, they've been fighting for centuries, and as they keep fighting on every battle, whenever some of them die, they are reincarnated as different people, but it's not like they're born again, it's like they die, they go through this kind of weird psychedelic thing, and then their consciousness comes alive in someone else's body, someone who up till that point had been living a normal life. Life, and then all of a sudden this guy wake this warrior wakes up in their body and takes over i have no idea where that soul goes and then the warrior takes over from that point so it's like this constant circle of life kind of thing going on over there fighting and fighting and taking over people and taking over people and that's that's generally what's going on in the beginning here yeah it's, it's really it's a really interesting concept like you say because they literally take over somebody's body and then they just ditch their families and they go on yeah. they're like well i got this war to fight you know and sometimes in this case the the families come they're like where are are you we hired a private investigator we want you to come back it's like it's not you it's me go away 
the main protagonist here is one of the warriors his name is Lukaj is how I read it I don't know it's like it's really spelled very strange so you can pronounce yes, it however it you want but he is always reincarnated as a guy you know so he he gets reincarnated for this battle but then he gets killed and this time he gets reincarnated as a woman who has children and it's just like huh like and so he is <laughs> totally shocked he actually wakes up after a little fun time uh, she was having some post-coital time with her uh her lover and then she, he wakes up in her body and looks in the mirror he's like what the? and so it's it's a really interesting scenario because now in addition to this he goes to this old wise warrior or whoever it is because their archimage character who is keeping them alive and reincarnating them has now been destroyed and so he can't do that for them so he's stuck in this body and this wise woman's like well we kind of always wanted this to happen you were meant to go into a woman's body it gives him this little talisman on a chain that looks like mantra's mask the character becomes and she says like this should be your mantra i always thought it was pronounced mantra because it's a man in a woman's body but but no it's it's mantra because like she gives him mantra but when the talisman is in his hand then he transforms into the warrior version of the woman with the outfit and everything in it and she's like you were meant to be in this woman's body all this stuff so there's a purpose in it but what i find most interesting about the concept is as a kid i always thought like oh okay you're gonna read this book because it's got a hot warrior woman in it i like xena <laughs> warrior princess and then you realize no it's a dude inside the woman's body so it just it messes with your head and it could have been so insensitive and non-pc and not handled well but it actually is a really well balanced book did you find that to be the case michael i did i i really liked it i'm re-skimming through it as we speak personally uh I don't know if you even know this. Terry Dobson is is my favorite artist, bar none. Oh, what? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, oh, I actually have a – he did a cover for me of, uh, of a Phoenix cover of a Jean Grey I have on my wall, and uh, he's literally one of my, my favorite artists probably other other than Alex Ross. Like him, Alex Ross, and Jason Fabok are like my top three favorite artists. But yeah, no, I think the, sto- the story is well balanced. It is interesting. I do like the, the twist to it. It's clever, and it's literally better than anything we've read on Image. <laughs> yeah i mean it comes to the point where you know the character is going to have to live the life of this woman take care of her kids and all this other stuff so i have a few other issues of mantra that i've picked up over the years of 50 cent bins and yeah for me it's definitely the strongest of this early run uh someday we're gonna have to cover rune because rune is a really cool yeah. concept as well it's really well done and uh nightman not so much but for some yeah. reason nightman gets turned into a tv series eventually so (laughs) yeah that was a weird choice i'm I'm surprised that made it to tv yeah so we'll get into that down the line but uh any final thoughts on the ultraverse packs as we close out this segment i mean yeah i mean it's a lot of fun you you really got to be careful picking stuff like you said mantra um and we talked about prime there's a couple of other ones you mentioned sludge and rune are pretty good so and but but you can look at them something like prototype and uh, it's going to be like oh it's Iron Man which it kind of is but it's also got a little twist to it that's a little bit different so I mean definitely investigate some stuff I mean but it's overall it's it's a cool idea and they're trying to do something new and I appreciate that. All right. Well, speaking of something new, we got to get some new excitement into the movie theaters. So Michael, take us into Heroes in Motion.
our old pal Andy Mangles reports that a new animated Spider-Man series is coming to Fox in the fall of 1994. Originally planned to be just a five-part miniseries, it has now received a full 65-episode order based on the popularity of the X-Men animated series and also mentions that there is a The Tick animated series coming as well. I don't remember. I remember the Tick TV series. Was was there? There was a Tick animated series, right? Oh but yeah, the cartoon. Yeah. I mean, that, it's it's yeah. funny you remember the live action with Patrick Warburton because that was a real short lived show, and I have it on DVD. I loved it, but the Tick animated series—that's what everybody goes back to. I vaguely remember. It. I, I've watched a bit of the episodes, but I do remember the TV show more. I don't know. Wow. Why? But okay. I did. We should really see if we can get a- Andy Mangles on the Wizard Files. I bet he's got some interesting stories. He's got to, especially because he jumped ship to Hero Illustrated in a couple months. So. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. We should track him down on Twitter and see if we can yeah, get him on I, the show. I, well, we're following him, so all in good time. All right. A comic called Model by Day has been optioned by Fox for a pilot starring the pre-GoldenEye, pre-X-Men Femke Jensen as Lady X, a fashion model who becomes a vigilante by night. Okay? Whatever. Fine. Sure. Uh, The TV movie that was filmed also starred Playboy Playmate Shannon Tweed. Really? Wow. And... Two-time comic book movie leading lady loser, Sean Young. Oh, poor Sean Young. Can't get a break. Sure (laughs) can't. And the script was from Jeff Loeb. Wow, interesting. Apparently, it's on Amazon Prime in its entirety, and of course, Adam has watched it. I can sum it up quickly. It was the 90s. No, I mean, it's one of those things, I mean, it was just so flashy. Everything looked like a fashion commercial. You know, it's, oh, we're going to do this in black and white. We're going to do all this. I mean, it was very stylized and at the same time, incredibly cheap. And so, yeah, it was one of those things where it's just like, oh, we're going to see, you know, girls in like short, skimpy leather outfits fighting crime and sometimes fighting each other. And there was like an imposter Lady X who was inspired by Famke Jansen, who goes out and the news names her Lady X because there were a strap uh, on her halter top in the back made an X. And they're like, it's Lady X. And she's in the newspaper. And I looked up on IMDb and it says, this is a role Famke Jansen says she wishes she could forget. (laughs) So, yeah, it's mostly just about cute girls in in skimpy outfits and a little bit of gunfire. But Famke Jansen's actually really good at it. You can see why, you know, the dialogue's terrible, but you can see why she would get work later on. So, yeah, if you want to check it out, it's it's definitely 90s camp. It's what you would expect from, a, you know, what would have been a TV movie, except for the fact that this was obviously direct-to-video, because they added a little bit of nudity and language in there, just, I guess, to give it some oomph. Interesting. <laughs> Spe- speaking of uh, movies that are bad and low-budgeted, but very stylized i tried starting to watch the birds of prey harley quinn movie on on hbo max mm-hmm. i got about 25 minutes in and i was like i don't know if i can do this it was rough <laughs> yeah black canary's cool i wish it was just a black canary movie because i liked her character yes i agree but the rest of it is ooh, it's rough it's also reported that late night tv talk show host 
Conan O'Brien revealed that in college, Burt Ward came to speak about his time playing Robin and showed off the original costume from the 66 series. Conan, Conan, Conan and his friends, Conan. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. I can't read. What are you going to do? Yeah, it's a Melvin comic right there. Conan yeah. stealing the bat and Burt Ward. Yeah. I have a master's degree in writing and I can't read, folks. That's great. It's fantastic. Conan and his friends planned a heist posing as security guards and stole the costume from the boy wonder while another friend dressed as the penguin and taunted him from the crowd. <laughs> It's actually really a funny story. Like, Adam, please share like a link or something on our socials because it's, it's a very funny thing. The whole story is available on YouTube and we'll provide you a link when the episode drops. But it's, it's, it's a good, good laugh because I watched that and I was sitting there and Dory's like, what are you laughing at? I'm like, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get it, but it's hilarious. <laughs> Okay. Oh, God. This is coming back up again. Keeps coming back. Uh, so <laughs> Howard Stern is still hell-bent on doing the fart man and <laughs> is is held up in contract issues because the shock jock wants all the merchandising and licensing money to go to him, which New Line Cinema is not agreeing to. So hopefully this will be the last time we'll be hearing about <laughs> fart man in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> oh. Okay, now, this is something that I am excited and terrified to talk about at the same time. So, friend of the show, Stephen Sapellis and I, he has me watch the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie in a, in a bonus episode miniseries. Reportedly, plans have been announced for an August 1993 release in 200 theaters nationwide. A representative from Roger Corman's company says that comparing Fantastic Four to Captain America or the Punisher films is premature, and that the <laughs> film boasts 150 optical shots. What does that mean? Special effects. Yeah, I guess. I've never heard it called optical shots before, um, which is the same number as Star Wars. But Star Wars was 15, 20 years earlier. Okay, maybe give or take. Um, of course, this doesn't happen. But again, stay tuned for the full story and go back and listen to our discussion. It is going to be a doozy. You'll enjoy it. That is our Heroes in Motion. What do we got for Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go? How bizarre. There's no slowing down here on the gimmick train, so Marvel is hyping Magneto number zero, which Wizard reports is just a foil embossed cover featuring reprint stories and a few new pinups by unnamed artists, because Marvel has no big artists anymore. <laughs> 
Uh, but to get this quote free comic, you have to purchase all five X books in June and also pay seven dollars and fifty cents up front to get a proof of purchase. I don't, I don't know if Wizard was reporting it poorly or what. It didn't make any sense to me. It's like you got to buy the comics, but you also have to reserve it by giving them seven fifty. So it's very strange. But everybody is doing this zero issue thing. They're like, look at how many books Image sold. It was because of that zero issue. So you got to buy all the coupons, and then you, know, then you're gonna get your zero issue that nobody cares about anyway nobody cares about it they're still doing zeros to this day and oh really cares. okay oh yeah yeah. Now, the actual return of Magneto issue of the comic, Uncanny X-Men number 304, features a, quote, wraparound, state-of-the-art Polaroid hologram of Magneto on the cover, which sounds fancier than it is, because I went and looked at it. Yes, the cover features wraparound art, like a standard wraparound cover would be, but the hologram is just the trading card-sized image on the otherwise standard cover, like was on, you know, X-Factor number 92 or Robin 2 or here's the question (laughs) it literally says Polaroid hologram for those of you guys who are younger and don't know what a Polaroid is so a Polaroid is a camera that you take a picture and when it would like spit it out in the front and you'd shake it shake it shake it and they even have like a you know there's an outcast song shake it like a Polaroid picture you know (laughs) and 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 the the image would reveal over a couple of minutes now are you saying that this is like how how is this Polaroid hologram I don't understand that is it like I think it's just they must have gone to Polaroid to print them but like you know Polaroid had to have something other than just their cameras so I guess they (laughs) other they're printing holograms for comics but I just think it's funny Michael for people who don't know what a Polaroid is there's nobody listening to the show that isn't at least 30 years old you never know You never know. There could be, like, somebody's driving in their car, their kid's in the back seat, and they're like, Dad, what's a Polaroid? Oh, <laughs> you guys don't know. You think you got your digital cameras and your smartphones? This is what we had to do. And then I explained it, and now the universe knows what it is again. There you go. You've done a great service, sir. I- I try. <laughs> Marvel is also releasing Avengers number 366 with a gold foil cover in honor of that team's much less exciting uh, 30th anniversary because the X-Men anniversary is overshadowing the fact that the Avengers came out at the same time. Nobody cares. They're like, no, 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 we want X-Men. They're trying their best. There's like, you know, some double page ads in the issue and stuff. It's like, also the Avengers, 30 years. Do you like the team we have now? They weren't jackets. <laughs> now dc doing their best to stay in the game they're releasing hawkman number one a hawkman reboot here with a foil enhanced cover which just doesn't seem to cut it anymore it's foil enhanced uh, we, we, we need the big stuff we gotta have the chromium we gotta have mirror card <laughs> we gotta have whatever this nonsense words they're making up are you know so <laughs> exactly now finally This is the big news, if you ask me, at least for 90s kids. Wizard is releasing their own series of Pogs, which they claim are going to have 25 different designs. But if you look at what they've printed in the magazine, mostly featuring Batman 66-style onomatopoeia sounds. Biff, bam, pow, snick it, you know, you're just like, ah. But also, they're saying they're going to release a special booklet to hold the Pogs in, and issue 25 will include a special commemorative 
commemorative 25th issue pog and retailers can get a foil stamped edition when they order 25 issues of wizard number 25 25 (laughs) not that this is necessarily relevant for the like punisher's price guide but i just did a quick look on ebay the Number 25 Pog is listed on eBay, folks, for a whopping $7.19. Go get it while it's hot. There you go. (laughs) Well, especially get it because it was the only Pog that was released in this series that they were calling GOPs, G-O-Ps, probably because they learned it was a registered trademark. And I just think it's funny because I think most people don't recognize this, but Pogs were literally a trademarked name. You know, it's like Windex or whatever else, you know, Kleenex. We use that, but when DC had their Pogs, they had to call them Skycaps, because Skybox was producing them for them. Marvel, they called them Hero Caps. So, you know, they, we called them Pogs in the world, but that was not the case. But I'm super disappointed, because I could literally not find any trace of the 25 wizard pogs that supposedly were supposed to exist so if this really happened i gotta know i gotta have the evidence uh, as you guys have seen no doubt by now on our youtube channel i will drop money on ridiculous wizard merchandise you want to check it out go to the youtube page that is it for guy gardner's gimmicks a go-go but that's not it for the hype because michael it's time for let's dive into Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. It's a big month for Todd in terms of Spawn crossing over in other comic companies' continuities. Try to say that five times fast. Wizard News reports that though details are sketchy, Apparently, Spawn and Batman will appear in a crossover comic in the near future. It's not yet revealed that Frank Miller will be involved. Ooh, mysterious. But he is. This crossover event will inspire a very unique cover of Wizard in a few issues. Okay, that's interesting. I I remember the Spawn and Batman crossover. I didn't know there was a Wizard cover for it. That's kind of cool. Everybody remembers Valeria the She-Bat, number three, featuring a cameo by Spawn, is finally here and features a gatefold cover by Neil Adams and Todd McFarlane, shipping in a foil wrapper. After so much promotion by Wizard over the last few months, Adam just had to know if this book lived up to the hype and, of course, bought himself a copy. So, Adam, how is Valeria the She-Bat number three? Well, it was a late-night purchase, and I wasn't paying attention, so I got Valeria the She-Bat number one. And I'm very disappointed. Because <laughs> I really? wanted to see Spawn in the pages of this comic. And instead, I got the beginning of her story, which, uh, it's about animal mutant people and evil flying bats people that come up from the surface that all look like man bat from the batman comics and she's a supermodel by day but is half vampire bat and uh, she has a gorilla friend it's not great it's a mess i I would really love to see how spawn would work into that universe so charlton hero we're still waiting you said you were going to tell us whether or not valeria the she-bat featured spawn dig through your log box let us know 
Oh, boy. Don't let us know. I don't want to know. <laughs> don't want to know. So Jim Lee isn't really front and center in this issue, aside for a double page ad for Wildcats number five. But he is involved in the cover for issue 25. So stay tuned. This issue, Jim has a total of five mentions and Todd has a total of seven mentions. Now bring the total to Jim 148 and Todd being 180. 34. Todd had a little bit of a move up here. Yeah, he's catching up here. He's catching up. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. That's our Jim and Todd's hype machine. Adam, what's next for us? All right. Well, we're going to close out here on Punisher's Price Guide. In that article, as real as it gets, <laughs> it was reported that the Sword of Asriel number one wasn't recognized as an important book until the Nightfall saga kicked off, right, in the Batman titles. Writer Doug Mensch stated that the books were now hot in selling for $20 a pop at comic stores, because everybody just had to know the origin of Azrael. So now we're going to discover if his first appearance has gone up in value as a Firestar, retained its value as a Firestorm, or dropped in value as a Burnout. So in 1993, the Wizard price guide listed sword of azrael number one at a value of 15 dollars. so maybe doug munch was uh maybe over exaggerating there now as of november 2020 a non-graded copy of sword of azrael number one sells on ebay for an average of four dollars and 99 cents and the whole mini series can be had for under 20 dollars. so sorry sword of azrael number one but you are a burnout but you know whose star is still burning bright? One Paxton Holly. Pax, thank you so much for joining us and being part of this discussion. Man, we got to do a lot of stuff this episode, I'll tell you. There's so much going on this episode. There, there was a lot. Like, this was this was intense. And the thing about it that's kind of deceiving is the cover is all about Nightfall, but it's it's not a very big section of this of this issue. It's a lot of other stuff. And it's just kind of like Nightfall's kind of, here it's here we'll, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit it's like wizard still hates dc for some reason <laughs> yeah we got to cover it because it's newsworthy but we're just going to cover it for like three pages of a 200 page magazine well, go. it's true. They they don't release a Nightfall special issue like they did for the death of Superman, so maybe they're also biased against Batman? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, you got the Nightfall article, like like you said, Michael's like three pages, but you look at the Shaman's Tears article, how long was that? That was like eight <laughs> pages long, man. Ridiculous. <laughs> he's hot, he's new, he's an image. <laughs> well, Pax, again, it was such a pleasure having you here. And to resurrect a popular phrase from the Nerd Lunch podcast, R.I.P. Rest in podcast. Why don't you drop your thing in the thing? Sounds wildly uh, well, inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> it, it did when I first said it on the show, too. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, guys. I do appreciate it. And I love 
the show. So thank you for doing the show, first of all. For me, if you like, if you want to hear me, you, you can find me on Twitter under my name, Paxton Holly, H-O-L-L-E-Y. I have a couple of podcasts. Adam mentioned them at the top. I have a Western podcast called Hellbent for Letterboxd. I have a cult film podcast called Cult Film Club. And I do a novelization podcast where I compare movies and the novelizations called I Read Movies. All of those are monthly. So you can check all those out. For me, Twitter is probably the best place under my name. All right. Well, great. So this is a ton of fun. And uh, for all of you listening, thank you so much for joining us once again. And boy, do we have some content coming at you at the end of the year. So uh, we hope you have subscribed to the YouTube channel because we're just having a fun time talking face to face over there, showing off toys, showing off comics, showing off some ridiculous purchases that I've made in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, also in the meantime, of course, be sure that you are tuning in to the wizard files interviews uh, episodes our mini episodes are still packed with lots of fun and michael groaning a lot <laughs> yeah hug babe of the month is back baby oh goody and if you guys want me to cover anything particular on the mini episodes please let us know because if i can digress from talking about the hunk of the month and the babe of the month and and those awful awful quizzes that i despise please i'll I'll go on a 45 minute rant if you want me to about something else anything else please (laughs) Uh, and of course stay tuned for something that might not be so painful for michael our fantastic four series of bonus episodes with steven sapelis that is going to be a whole lot of fun for all of you of course we want to thank the retro network for all they do and supporting the show and being there as our home base be sure to check out the retro network.com and all the great shows they have on their podcast feed of course you can find us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics and until next time keep your books packed and boring This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.